Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, today, uh, I'm more profoundly aware of the leadership and the um, council of the leadership of this church um, with Greg and with Ryan. Jamie and I are a part of that uh, membership class and just sitting in there and, uh, and just the, the relationships that we've built with, that I've built uh, very closely with Ryan and with Greg have been uh, profound on my life and in my marriage and in my relationship with the Lord. And so I just think, I encourage you uh, to join me uh, daily in praying for those two men as they continue to lead and shepherd and bear the burden of, of this church. Uh, it's not an easy task. It takes a lot of time um, and just the emotional weight of leading a church and leading a congregation is, it, it, it's remarkable. So I, I just encourage you to, to, to not forget that, to, to lean in on them. So, this morning, uh, if you would open your Bibles to Acts 4, we've been working our way through the opening chapters of the book of Acts, and I think it's right to remind ourselves of what are the acts that are being described here. I mean, we've, growing up, I could list off all the books of the Bible in the New Testament, and whenever I get to Acts, I just kept going through, but why is this book named Acts? And the, the Acts that is referred to here by Luke uh, Luke is meaning to document and communicate to us the acts of the apostles of Jesus and the continuation of the ministry of Jesus by the apostles through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the genesis. This is the, the epicenter, the origin of the Christian church as instituted by the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ Jesus. And now we get to witness them witnessing so I remember uh, back when I was in college, I, I participated in a lot of theater. Um, I did a lot of shows. Uh, every year I committed multiple months of rehearsals, of evenings set aside to spend time practicing and rehearsing for the show in my college, small college in Minnesota. One summer I was, uh, was going to spend the summer in Minneapolis, and I decided to join a community theater. Uh, and they were putting on a production of uh, the classic musical Les Miserables, and I decided, hey, why not give it a, give it a, give it a go? I immediately, I recognized that there's a difference between this community theater and the theater at a small Christian college. <laughs> and it was, the difference was one of comfortable, uh, protected by a clear Christian, Christ-centered, worshipful focus on theater, and one that was not. And I remember when introducing myself to all the, the different people that I was meeting at this community theater, and I remember being afraid. I remember being afraid of a couple things. First, I didn't want to tell people that I went to this conservative Christian college. I didn't want to be, uh, I didn't want the rumors to fly, the, 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 the drama of going to a very small conservative Christian college. And two, I didn't want to tell people that I was a biblical and theological studies major. Um, and whenever I Whenever this came up, when I was introducing myself, I, I had this feeling of dread, this feeling of fear, of, in a sense, shame, of, I, I don't want to get into it. <laughs> I just want to, my name's Matt, I'm, I'm here. Uh, I'm, I play this role. <laughs> I didn't want to be ostracized for, for being a Christian. I didn't want to be seen as, as weird or bigoted or whatever other word this culture has deemed appropriate for Christians. I was afraid and I was ashamed. 
And I believe that what the Lord has in store for us this morning in this text is that our fear, our shame, our unbelief, and our internal sin is no obstacle to the mission of Christ. So what we saw last week um, from Greg in the opening verses of Acts 4 is that the external opposition of the gospel is also not an an obstacle to the ministry of Jesus. The external opposition is not an obstacle to the mission of Jesus. At the beginning of Acts chapter 4, Peter and John, uh, having healed a lame man in the name of Jesus, are teaching and speaking in the name of Jesus. Annoyed by this, all the big guns of the religious elite come upon them and arrest them. Uh, So before we dive into the text this morning, I think it's important for us to get a running start into the context of this passage. So Peter and John, if you remember from last week, if you were here, Peter and John have spent the night in jail and are now before the rulers and scribes along with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, the entire high priestly family. So Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 7. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, By what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, into our text this morning. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. But... In order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them not to speak, or to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus, but Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Let's pray. 
Father, we're relying on you this morning. We're dependent on your grace and your goodness and your revelation to give us eyes, to give us ears. So, Father, I pray we would accept and rejoice in your word this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So begin looking at this text, we have to acknowledge that, A, there's a lot going on here. Uh, as with most passages, we could spend a lot of time digging and dissecting all the different uh, moving parts that are found in this passage. But this morning, uh, I've divided this passage into just three main sections, and I'll be highlighting the main point that I believe Luke means to draw our focus to. After that, I'll draw out a few additional observations and uh, conclusions. So first, verses 8 through 14, we see impassioned orthodoxy. I wish I could take credit for that two words, but uh, Greg is much better at words than I am. So impassioned orthodoxy. Anyone that's ever found themselves watching an infomercial, I don't know why I've found myself watching an infomercial, but I've found myself entranced by an infomercial, that you would agree with me that one of the most compelling marketing tools is the usage of before and after photos. Common to diet programs, workout DVDs, countless other services is the usage of before and after pictures. We see it all over. We see it in pictures. Look at how big this person used to be. Uh, and the the picture that they put is usually accompanied by an unflattering picture of someone complete with a face that's frowning to show just on how unhappy they are. And next is displayed an after picture that shows supposedly the same person, 60 pounds lighter, smiling from ear to ear, usually holding up before clothing or uh, flexing to show all the amazing results. And this is to show us that if we buy into this, same thing's going to happen to us. If we buy what they're sailing, selling, then we too will have a similar before and after experience. Uh, one of mine and Jamie's favorite shows to watch is Fixer Upper, where Chip and Joanna Gaines, uh, Gaines buy some old beat-up house for a steal and somehow find a way to flip this dilapidated farmhouse into the coolest house in Waco, Texas. And everyone who watches HTTV is now seeking to have shiplap everywhere in their house. Now, that's an hour-long show, and they sell it. They, they buy the, the old, dilapidated house at the beginning, and it can be tough to remember at the end what the end product used to look like. That's why, if you watch the show, they spend a lot of time showing you, this used to be the room, and now this is the room. They spend a lot of time in before and after pictures to show you what it used to look like. And I've noticed as I've watched that show that the old pictures at the end of the show that they show, uh, they look dark uh, and depressing. <laughs> but the new pictures that they put up uh, just show how much natural light this house always had and how bright and how sunny and how beautiful it is. And it can be, it can be shocking. It, it, it catches your eye. Now the usage of comparison the usage of juxtaposition, putting one thing up to the other to show, uh, to compare and contrast, is so compelling because it's so evident. It, it, it's right there in front of our eyes. You can see it for yourself. You can make note of all the various differences and the nuances, and it, it's hard to refute. It's right in front of you. 
what we're seeing in the first section of our passage of Acts uh, 4, 8 through 14, is that Peter and John are changed men. They are different. They're passionate. And they're bold. Peter's initial response to the religious elite's question of by what power or by what name they're doing this healing is our first evidence to the newness about Peter. We saw last week Peter is declaring to this group that, the, that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is both man and God. He's both a man and he is God. And it's by his name that they are doing these things. And furthermore, it's through Jesus and through Jesus alone that man can be saved. Now, now these are provocative statements. These are bold statements. And the rulers are, are taken aback by Peter's declaration. They witness it with their eyes and their ears. In verse 13, they're described as seeing the boldness perceiving that they're uneducated and common men and recognizing that they had been with Jesus. These men are, are blown away. They're, they're flabbergasted. They were hoping to have stumped Peter and John by intimidating them and bringing upon the full weight of the religious law, but instead, these men have acted and spoken boldly. They're not deterred. Now, now this is a shock to them. Peter and John, two men who have spent significant time with the Lord Jesus, up until Pentecost, had been exactly what the religious elite thought they were. They were uneducated, and they were common. Now, this bold response from the followers of Jesus is completely new. They're, they're used to it. They were used to it from Jesus. Jesus said provocative things all over the place. They're used to that, but now his followers are speaking boldly. This bold response is new. At the arrest of Jesus, the disciples had fled. They had scattered and gone underground. And even after Jesus was raised from the dead, these men could only be found behind locked doors, afraid of the persecution that could be brought on them. Uh, John chapter 20, verse 19, it's recorded for us this scenario. After the death and resurrection of Jesus, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were terrified. They were afraid of the coming persecution, this external opposition. Jesus had to give them peace just to be among them. The disciples had just witnessed the man they believed to be the Son of God brutally tortured and executed, and Peter, out of fear, denied even knowing him. Now Jesus was gone, and they were huddled together behind locked doors out of nothing but fear. That was the Peter before. That was Peter's disposition. But something obviously has changed, and the religious elite have taken notice. These are the same cowardly men that were with Jesus, but now they're different. They had perceived that they were uneducated and common men, but Peter was now speaking with theological precision. He was declaring that Jesus was both man and God. This is an incredibly complex theological discussion. This is what theologians later have named the, the, 
uh, hypostatic union of Christ, the combination or the personal union of the divine human nature, uh, it, divine and human natures in a single person, that is Christ. That, that's an educated, theological, mind-turning dis, uh, discourse that's now coming from Peter's lips. They look common and uneducated, but they certainly aren't speaking like it. But that's not all. They're not just speaking true things. They're passionate. And their passion is evident. They're bold. What's clear to all those standing in that room is that Peter and John not only know these things about Jesus, they believe them, and they feel them, and they love them. Whenever I see a before and after picture, I'm often looking at it, trying to pinpoint what's the difference between the two? What's the difference maker? What's the game changer that caused the differences I'm now seeing? So when we look at Peter and John, can we put our finger precisely on the difference maker? What's the fuel to this bold fire? Whatever it was, it's, it's clearly discernible by those who saw it. Those that were there saw, perceived, recognized that there was something different about these guys. There's a newness about them. They weren't just taking their word for it or or believing some subjective statement they were making. They were witnessing Peter and John's witness with their own eyes. The evidence is right before them. And it was so shocking that they had nothing to say back. This reminds us of Luke 21, 12 through 15. Jesus is uh, prescribing or prophesying about what will come. They will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and the prisons. Sounds familiar. And you will be brought before the kings and governors for my name's sake. Also sounds familiar. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and a wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. It's happening. It's happening. The prescription that Jesus laid out in Luke 21, uh, what will happen and what to do when it happens, is here described in Luke, again, in Acts 4. By Luke, again, in Acts 4. Jesus' people are experiencing real external opposition. They are being brought before all the people listed in Luke 21 and Acts 4, and they are being questioned about in whose name they are making and doing these miracles. This is the confrontation that Jesus is describing. This looks to be an obstacle, but Jesus has already told us what this opposition actually is. It's opportunity. And something has happened in Peter where he is now able to speak differently than before. He is emboldened by something that is the fuel to his witness engine. And when he speaks, his adversaries are not able to withstand or contradict. So so what is that something? What has happened? The answer, of course, is the promised power from on high, the Holy Spirit. What we have described here in Peter's actions and words is true spirit-inspired witness. And I believe the main point Luke's accounting 
uh, in Luke's accounting of these events is to show us that spirit-inspired witness is one, based on truth revealed in Scripture, and two, accompanied with discernible, bold affections. So, spirit-inspired witness is one, based on truth revealed in Scripture, and two, accompanied by discernible, bold affections. Peter, in his speech made earlier in Acts 4, 8 through 12, is not just making this stuff up. As Greg looked at last week, Peter is quoting directly from the Old Testament, from Psalm 118, 12. Everything that makes up Peter's witness is based upon and dependent upon the revealed truth of Jesus in Scripture. But spirit-inspired witness is not just... It's not, it's not just things we know by our heads only. And this has been a running theme for us in Acts, that it's, it's one thing to know truths about Jesus, to know the truths revealed about him in Scripture, to know those with all of our mind. It's a completely different thing, an entirely new thing, to know who Jesus is. Uh, Ryan and I are currently in the process of creating a new class here at, at Sioux Falls Christian not really new, revamping an older class called uh, Doctrine and Theology. <laughs> Talk about a class that will get high schoolers pumped up to, <laughs> to study. But in preparation for it, I've, I've been reading through a familiar book that Ryan has used in the past uh, called Dug Down Deep by Joshua Harris. In the opening chapters, Josh is making a case for why theology and doctrine matters. And so he says this, I have a nine-year-old daughter named Emma, whom I love very much, and it's absolutely true that information and facts about my daughter can never take the place of actually loving her. But this doesn't mean that I should avoid knowing about her. An important part for, uh, of caring for and cultivating a relationship with my little girl involves my willingness to learn her character and personality, her likes or dislikes. Details about her, the, the color of her hair, the music she enjoys, the gifts, or her, her gifts, fears, and dreams are all important to me because she is important to me. These truths about her could simply be empty data, but because they describe a living person whom I love, they enrich and grow my love for her. Facts can never take her place, but I can't know her without them. I desire not just to know about Jesus, but, but I desire to, to know who he is. And the relationship between truths of Jesus and the bold affections of Peter are what make up spirit-inspired witness. Peter knew Psalm 118, just like the priest, but it wasn't just empty data to him, this, this cornerstone. And it wasn't empty because it's describing a person, and it's describing a living person and a person that he had spent time with, a person that he loved and followed. And it's in knowing the truths about Jesus that enrich and ground the love and affection that Peter has for him. This is, this is doctrine that is known and felt, not just with the head, but with the heart as well. This is impassioned orthodoxy. Orthodoxy having true and 
proper thoughts, straight thoughts about who God is as come to us through Scripture, but not just knowing those things, but being impassioned by them, knowing the truth and the promises of Jesus and loving and treasuring them to the point where you just need to tell people. These men are passionately pursuing the Spirit of God. They seek after Him, and that's impassioned orthodoxy. Verse 15 through 18, we see from this text there's more opposition and the declaration of no more witness. I can recall an instance from, uh, from growing up when a bunch of severe storms were rolling through the Sioux Falls area. Uh, last night we were, when I was, I was sitting on the porch and I don't know, the storms that came through Sioux Falls just yesterday afternoon, uh, I was sitting on the porch writing and there was some lightning, some rolls of thunder, whatever, just kept going. And uh, all of a sudden, uh, there was a really, bu- and I'm sure many of you have had this experience, really bright flash and immediate just pop of thunder that felt like it was on top of us. Uh, and I got off the porch and I went back inside. And uh, as I was talking to Jamie, fire trucks just start screaming down our, our, our road. <laughs> and then people started flooding their houses and as small town people do, and going to look at what had happened. Uh, And it turns out that apparently, it wasn't confirmed, but a house nearby had gotten struck by lightning, by that very bolt of lightning. But that that brought this this memory to mind of a bunch of severe storms were rolling through the Sioux Falls area, and I, like most young, young kids, used to be terrified of storms. As I grew older, uh, I began to be fascinated by them. And I have such vivid images of of my dad standing outside watching the clouds and standing in the garage watching it rain. I used to think he was crazy. Why is he not seeking shelter? And when I was little, I remember thinking my dad was crazy for going out in the garage with the open garage door to sit and watch the storms roll through. But as I grew older, I I found myself right next to him (laughs) watching the storms roll through marveling at the dark clouds, the torrential rain, high winds, bright flashes of lightning, and the deep, loud explosions of thunder. And it was on one uh, especially hot and humid day. I say that qualifier especially because it's summer in South Dakota. You need to, it's always hot and humid. That the clouds were looking particularly ominous. We had been watching the radar as a family, and uh, then my dad and I were out on the driveway watching the wall cloud begin to overtake Sioux Falls. And as my dad and I were on the drive, out on the driveway, the, that calmness started to settle over the city. And the wind died down and everything became really still. And piercing out of that stillness uh, came the chilling whine of the tornado sirens. Myself, my dad, and my mom all heard that siren. I mean, it's, <laughs> it, it wakes you up. It, it, it pierces into your brain. My mom was from the safety of the front door called out to us to get inside and we need to go downstairs. My dad and I chose to reject the sirens and sit and just watch the storm anyway. We, we heard the sirens. We didn't, we didn't care. We heard my mom's call. We didn't, we didn't care. We were going to watch this thing come in. Uh, and it wasn't until the wind returned and the lightning and the hail forcing us back into the house. But the reason I recall this moment from growing up is because in the narrative of Peter and John and the religious leaders, the siren is sounded and the gospel is heard by all who are there. 
There is no denying the miracle that has taken place, the healing of this lame man. And there's no refuting that these men are making massive truth claims about Jesus. Acts 4, uh, 15, 16. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. The healed man is standing right there. He used to be lame from birth, and now he's dancing around. And not only that, these men who are supposed to be common, uneducated fishermen are now making claims like there's salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Again, this is bold speech. This is notable. This is alarming. This is the siren call that cannot be ignored. It must be either accepted as truth or rejected as a lie. Acts 4, 17, 18, we see their response. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. The message of the gospel, clearly shown forth by word and by deed, requires a response. And such notable and clear spirit-inspired witness that's shown here by Peter and John is accepted by some, but it's rejected by the leaders of the law. It's met not with repentance and belief, but further opposition. No more witness, they declare. No more teaching, no more speaking, and no more healing in the name of Jesus. And what's clear here is that the religious leader's beef is with Jesus. It's Jesus they don't like. It's the name of Jesus they despise. If they were preaching and teaching in the name of their accepted ways, according to their traditions, that wouldn't be much of an issue. But these men are breaking the status quo. They are boldly breaking the status quo. They thought they were done with this Jesus of Nazareth when they nailed him to the cross and, and killed him. But it seems that the more they try and do away with him, the more his message is spread by those who are his witnesses. And finally, verses 19 through 22. Further boldness and no punishment. Uh, one of my fa uh, favorite authors, a well-known pastor and author, uh, Kevin DeYoung, gave a sermon uh, a couple years ago at the Cross Student Mich uh, Missions Conference in Louisville, Kentucky. L Louisville, right? L Louisville, cool. The title of his sermon was Five Surprising Motivations for Mission. And this is just a, a, an excerpt from his, uh, from his sermon. He said this, One of the best books I've read in recent years is The Barbarian Conversion from Paganism to Christianity by Richard Fletcher. It's a captivating book title. It's about the evangelization of Europe, which took the better part of a millennium. The point Fletcher emphasizes over and over is that the conversion of Christian and Christianization of Europe was a very slow business. He argues that Christianity eventually won over the West because of three factors. The demonstration of power, the faithful preaching, and dogged persistence. If we are ever going to make a difference for Christ, especially in the difficult work of the Great Commission, we have to become not just senders or goers, but stayers. And the only way we'll stay for the long haul 
is if we trust in the never-failing, always timely providence of God. What will keep you there? A steady faith in God's sovereignty gives you the confidence to stick around. Trusting the word of God is more than enough to do the work of God. Peter and John, filled with the Holy Spirit, were not deterred by external oppositions, internal oppositions, and they were not deterred by the supposed rejection of the gospel by the religious elite. When this consul came back from the deliberation and declared, no more witness, they didn't throw their hands up and ask God, what did we do wrong? What more do we have to do? We healed a guy, we preached, we taught, fearlessly spent a night in jail, and had a killer response to the leaders that left them speechless. But they still reject Christ. Was it not good enough? What more do we have to do? This obviously was not their response. And it wasn't their response because they understood that their task was not to change dead hearts or to redeem lost souls. But their task and our task is to be Christ's witnesses. And to witness in the name of Christ is to speak spirit-inspired speech. And that comes by trusting in Jesus' promises and having a steady faith in God's sovereignty that alone gives the confidence to be stayers. It's trusting and believing that the word of God is more than enough to do the works of God. Acts 4, 19 through 20, Peter and John answered them saying, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must be the judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They have spent time with Jesus. They are under the filling of the, and power of the Holy Spirit, and they have seen the works of Christ. They have heard his message, and they, are going to, and they were witnesses to it. And now they are going to tell others. This continuing confidence and boldness of Peter and John is proof that these men trusted in the promises of Jesus. These same men who were afraid and filled with shame and fleeing and denying Christ were the same men who were now boldly proclaiming his rule and reign that is now coming to bear on the earth. And they were his witnesses. This passage shows us it's the fulfillment of the promise of Acts 1.8, which says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This type of witness left the religious leaders with nothing to say. Their threats were empty. Their words were hollow. And in the end, they could do nothing. Because those who had heard and received the gospel of Jesus were praising God for what he had done. In the end, they were let go. Finally, just a few closing observations. Just a few things I want to clarify as we read a text like this that just a few conclusions. First of all, this boldness is not some ecstatic, uncontrollable euphoria. Emmaus is probably by far the most charismatic church that I've ever been a part of, which 
I don't know how much that says, but in any quick scan of YouTube or Google, it will give you all the evidence you need to have a bit of skepticism to what could be misunderstood by what Peter is saying. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Images to the the worried, images of mindless babbling and undecipherable and incoherent words accompanied by flailing around come to mind if not understood properly. But Peter and John are not sensationalists. They are confident. They are filled with the Spirit and speak with such piercing precision and clarity that it is evident and it is apparent. Every word that comes from their mouth is grounded in and directed by the revealed word of God. These men speak not only on their own authority, but by and in the name of Jesus. Their orthodoxy, their belief in knowing who Jesus is drives their passion and drives their impassioned orthodoxy. That is the engine of their speech. They know things about Jesus under the power of the Spirit. They declare them boldly. Secondly, Our response should not be, I need to be more bold. There's a temptation, as I've experienced, in reading passages like this and thinking that this is, again, a template or some matrix for the proper Christian life. We look at it, we have the temptation to look at this as some equation. If I do A and if I do B, then C is the automatic outcome. And if C isn't happening, there must be something wrong with A or something wrong with B, some miscalculation. If I know true things about Jesus, and if I'm bold about them, then spirit-inspired witness will happen, and people will come to Christ, and it'll be amazing, and it'll be, it'll be awesome. But if I look at my own life, it becomes apparent that I'm not bold. I, I might be a fairly outgoing person, but I'm nothing like the boldness of Peter and John described here in Acts 4. I'm not boldly preaching and teaching in the streets, healing every sick person that comes along. I'm really not facing that much external opposition, but when it comes to witnessing, I'm filled with fear and anxiety, and I doubt myself thinking that it'll be awkward, and I don't want to trouble them, etc., But if we go back to the equation, if we plug that into the equation, I know true things about Jesus. I know he's the son of God. I know he died for my sin, that he rose again on the third day, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and so on and so forth. But I'm not bold. So that must be why I'm not seeing people come to Christ. Solution, I just need to be more bold. I just need to add that into my equation and I need to try harder. I need to work harder. I need to do more. But that's not the solution. This morning I was uh, reminded of a passage from Galatians, Galatians 3. This won't be on the screen, but Galatians 3, uh, 1 through 6, uh, Paul is giving uh, these rhetorical questions. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus was publicly portrayed and, gruc- and crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? 
if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? The solution is not, I need to be bolder, but the solution is trust Jesus. Peter and John are not operating under some spiritual formula. They're they're simply witnessing. They, by the power of the Holy Spirit, given to them from on high, promised to them from on high, are trusting in the promises of Jesus. They believe in him and all he has for them. And when he said, you will be my witnesses, he meant it. And they are trusting in that. And when they trust that over their own fear and unbelief, they can witness. Finally, internal opposition is not an obstacle to witness. As we look at an ever-increasingly hostile American culture, a culture that is more and more unashamedly rejecting the rule and reign of Jesus, it's easy for us to sit in, our, in the safety of our community and point to that as the obvious external opposition. That, that's out there. We can all see that. That's the obvious beast named in Revelation. We can recognize that as evil and something that Jesus already has control over, dominion over. The beast is no obstacle for witnessing. But a much tougher pill to swallow is that of the prostitute in Revelation. The harlot of our own hearts that slowly seduces us into thinking that the obstacles of fear and anxiety and shame and unbelief, etc., are too much for Jesus to overcome. He can overcome that out there, but not in here. I can never be a witness for Jesus. I'm too messed up. I've, I've done too many terrible things. No one would listen to me. If they knew the type of person I am or the things that I've done, they just laugh at me. There are plenty of people much better suited to, be, uh, to being a witness for Jesus than I am. I'm not the right personality. I'm not the right temperament. I'm, I'm reserved. I'm shy. I, I don't, that's not me. I'm much better off staying put here, going to Sunday gatherings. You don't want me serving in the children's ministry. You don't want me playing uh, any instrument. You don't want any of that. I'm, I'm good where I am. I can't, those things can't be overcome. That's best. But I believe what Luke means to tell us here in Acts is that we must not believe these lies. From the depiction and the description of the narrative of Peter and John and their bold declarations, we look at that and say, I'm not that. That's not me. I can't do that. I can't say those things in front of all of, I can't heal anybody. I can't do any of those things. But Luke has described for us in Acts 4 that Peter and John are changed men. They're not flawless men. Yes, they are justified in the blood of Christ and are being sanctified in his truth day by day. But the Spirit-inspired witness that it's described for us here shows us that our internal opposition, our own unbelief, our own fear, our own shame is no obstacle to the ministry and mission of Christ. All Peter and John do is trust in the promise of Jesus Christ and obey. And that faith comes by hearing and repenting and believing. They believe the promises of Jesus. Why? Because they have seen it. 
They have witnessed it. They have seen and heard, and they will not be silent about it. They can't be silent about it. One of the things that I've, I've noticed is we, whenever we watch a movie, whenever we watch something sensational or watch, hear some compelling story, it, it's one thing, it takes a real, at first I sit and digest it on my own, but I have to tell somebody. It's usually Ryan. I usually just walk into his room and ask him, did you watch this? Did you read this article? Did you do this? I, and we need to express it and, and talk about it and, and share in this uh, experience. They cannot be silent about the things they have seen and heard. And this is the good news, that Christ died for me. I was dead in my sin, and I was lost, guilty and vile and helpless, but at the touch of Jesus, my dead heart was made alive. The the power from on high is mine in Christ Jesus. My fear and unbelief have been overcome. Complete atonement has been made, and Jesus has fully paid my debt. These are things that I know. Because of that, no wrath remains for me to face because of the grace of Jesus and has been washed away in his blood. And I don't just know these things to be true. I pray every day that God would make them clearer and deeper and closer and auger it deeper down into my soul until I feel its truth. And then I witness it. I am a witness to it. This is the fulfillment of the promise of Jesus. This is how his kingdom is spread, through the impassioned and emboldened orthodoxy, through his gospel, through broken vessels like you and me. And by witnessing, we testify to the truth of Jesus and his glorious rule and reign over all things. Let's pray. Jesus in all of our victories, you are better. Uh, in, in our fear and in our doubt and in our shame, those are no obstacle to you. You have overcome them. You have washed them away. And any thought otherwise is a lie to ourselves. Father, we just ask and pray that you would give us more of yourself. We ask earnestly that you would make your spirit manifest among us in our community, in our relationships, in our huddles, in our families, in our marriages, in our missional communities. And in this gathering today, would you make your spirit evident? Would you pour more? Would you break through our doubt, break through our unbelief? Why do we have these things? We know you have overcome them. And so, Father, we ask like the Father in Mark We believe, help our unbelief. Break through that unbelief. Just like you have overcome all external opposition, you have overcome our own opposition. So use us. See fit to use us, however you may make it. Help us to respond to the instances you put in front of us, to acknowledge your goodness and your grace, and to witness to it, to testify to the truth that you have come and your kingdom is here. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Would you stand, please?